0: Hello, and welcome to this edition of Criminal Justice Natters with me, Ed Johnston. Tonight, I'm joined by three very special guests. We are joined by Carl Turner, MP, who is the Shadow Minister for Legal Aid, Dr. Rebecca Helm, who is the Director of the University of Exeter's Evidence-Based Justice Lab, and Jerry Butin, the renowned US Defence Attorney. We're going to discuss primarily the early guilty plea and its impact on adversarial justice. So let's get to it. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining me today on Criminal Justice Matters. We're joined by Carl Turner, Dr. Rebecca Helm, and Jerry Buting. And we are going to discuss early guilty pleas and their sort of impact on adversarial justice. So who would like to kick off with maybe a brief description of early guilty pleas and why they're problematic?
1: Be great. For Rebecca America,
2: seems yeah. willing to kick it off so I'm very keen for that to happen.
1: I'll go for it. Um, so I've been researching guilty pleas now for about um, 10 years and one of the things that's always kind of funny is um, how people continue to believe that no one would plead guilty unless they had um, done something and so this is why I'm really excited to be talking about this today because actually There's a lot of compelling reasons to plead guilty even when you're innocent. Um, And one of those is the sentence discount um, that I guess is what we're gonna focus on today. So essentially defendants who plead guilty will typically get a reduced sentence compared to defendants who contest their guilt at trial. And our sentencing guidelines in England and Wales allow this reduction to be a reduction of one third. So you'll get a third shorter sentence or up to a third shorter sentence if you plead, and if that happens at the earliest possible opportunity. And this can have other implications. It can change a custodial sentence into something like community service, for example. So it can provide quite compelling reasons for people to plead. It also just creates this environment where there's often a multitude of reasons why you might plead guilty other than actually being guilty.
0: Thank you. Um in terms of their sort of prevalence in both the USA and in England and Wales, do you think, are there a lot of cases disposed of by way of a guilty plea before it gets to trial? That was a question well, from America. America. Oh, if, go on, Jerry. Yeah.
3: Okay, well, I'm sorry, for Rebecca, can I answer? I mean, I can I can speak to it. Certainly in America, that's absolutely the case. Uh, you know, statistically somewhere in the neighborhood of 99% of misdemeanors are resolved by guilty plea and um, felonies somewhere between 95 and 96% nationally. Now, you know, America has 50 different states, 50 different, plus the federal government, 50 different criminal justice systems that all have their own peculiarities. But um, there's no question that that while in, in England and Wales, you've got a Sort of a an actual discount that is um, statutorily set that you the clients know they're going to get or the defendants know they're going to get you know one third off in America. There's that I'm aware of. There's no fixed bargain like that. It's more a question of individual cases where and systems where people are encouraged to plead guilty at the earliest possible stage, waiting preliminary hearings sometimes waiving even getting discovery um, in order to get out of jail quicker or to get a reduced charge more quickly. And um, we have what's called and well-documented now, the trial penalty, where statistically it's very clear that you know two people, same kind of case, one who resolves it by a guilty plea, the other who goes to trial and loses, the person who goes to trial is going to get a longer sentence. Almost invariably, even though every judge will tell you they don't punish people for exercising their right to trial. Statistically, it's um, it's pretty clear that they do. At least many do. So
0: would would that effectively be a discount then or just it's not governed by statute, but there is a discount because if you go to trial, you're going to get a higher penalty.
3: There's a discount and there's a penalty. You know, it's, it's it's however you want to look at it.
0: Do you, this question for anyone who wants to jump in, do you think the idea, especially in England and Wales, then this statutory discount of a third at the earliest possible stage, is that in itself problematic to induce these guilty pleas?
2: I personally don't necessarily, Ed. I think the, you know, I think there's there's um, a good reason for having uh, that ability in the criminal courts. I have to say, it's been a long time since I was actually practicing in the criminal courts. I was elected to Parliament in 2010, um, and it was, uh, you know, a little bit before that that I was actually on my feet in uh, practice. Um, but, you know, there is a good reason. For example. the the fact that the victim is not required to give evidence if a plea is offered early on. But I'm really fearful, actually, because I think we're getting towards a situation uh, where people who are innocent of criminal offences are pleading what we used to describe as pragmatic uh, pragmatic pleading. Mm. Um, So, for an example, there'd be somebody who's uh, potentially accused of a an actual bodily harm a section 47 which is tribal either in the Magistrates Court or indeed in the Crown Court. Um, uh, it might be in a domestic setting so it's aggravated by that that, that fact. Uh, it, it's heard by the district judge in the Magistrates Court. Uh, the judge makes a suggestion that, it, that the case could be dealt with by way of a plea uh, and indeed that it could be dealt with by way of a plea on a basis. So it suits the defendant's version of events more than it does the Crown's version of events. Now, given that we have a uh, 50,000, I think it's 50,000 case backlog in the Crown Court at the moment and many hundreds of thousands backlog in the magistrates, if you've got that defendant, that uh, alleged defendant uh, on remand in prison, Uh, when, in fact, if they pled guilty, there'd be probably a reasonable chance that they wouldn't be serving anything uh, like a custodial sentence. Uh, There is a tendency to to, uh, pragmatically plead guilty. Now, I think that is increasing exponentially, actually, and it really does concern me. I don't think the government have uh, given it much thought. I, I'm not being party political, I'm not sure uh, the previous Labour government which I represent gave it much thought either, but I think Covid-19 has exposed a crisis in the system which frankly was already on its knees and these uh, these uh, occurrences are a- increasing uh, as a result of of what's been happening in terms of backlog. So I am worried. Actually, I don't know if I've answered anything, but that is sort of a rant from me. Yeah, with uh, what I think.
0: I, I, I think there's a couple of interesting points there, especially about the the defendant who's held on, on remand. And if he entered a guilty plea now, time served probably means, you know, that's done and dusted and, and get on with your life. But what about that person who's serving that time and thinks I could just park this and still get on with my life? but I didn't do anything wrong. The The ramifications of a conviction is going to hold them back in, in some way, maybe in terms of employment or housing or or whatever. And Rebecca, I, I noticed, it, or I noted in the Law Gazette article, you speak of the false guilty plea.
1: Um, yeah, so I mean, a lot of my research focuses on why people would plead guilty when they're not guilty. Um, and Carl um, mentioned that situation where they're held on um, remand in custody, but they can potentially get out of jail by pleading guilty. And that is a big one. Um, you see defendants who essentially wouldn't necessarily receive a custodial sentence at trial or who would receive a short custodial sentence at trial held for long periods on remand. And COVID, of course, has made that a lot worse. Um and you imagine this situation, right? You're a single mother, you have precarious employment, particularly, you know that if you plead guilty, you can get out. Um, whereas if you want to prove that you're innocent, you might have to sit there. And it's actually you know, becoming a longer and longer period of time that people are sitting there for. I know when I looked at this in 2018, it was something like on average, you'd spend 15 weeks on remand. If you were willing to plead in a little over 30 weeks, if you wanted to go to trial, it's much longer now. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I spoke to lawyers, then 83% of them said they had clients who could get out of jail by pleading. So it's not uncommon. And I think that's that's definitely an important source of false guilty pleas. And then, like you say, there's horrible consequences for people once they um, are out of custody and have a criminal conviction that they don't deserve
0: yeah how do you think again a question for anyone how do you think we can fix this idea that there are false guilty pleas so innocent people aren't caught up because it's attractive to enter a guilty plea early I'm not sure I have the answer I mean
2: as a criminal practitioner I was always you know fairly certain that a client's instructions uh you know if a client instructed me that they wanted to enter a guilty plea I would be uh, making it very clear to them that that had to be unequivocal it had to be it had to be a guilty plea based on the fact that they were guilty of the offence or guilty of a lesser offence than what was charged um uh, but I, I I do think there is incentives now, uh, not least because of the pressure on district judges in magistrates' courts, even, uh, you know, we have something which, even when I was on my feet in the uh, criminal courts, called the thumbscrew court, mm. where the judge would uh, insist on airing the case. He or she would have, you know, the the um, those cases for that day and would very often put pressure on, uh, you know, making suggestions of how it could be, quote-unquote carved up how it could be dealt with uh, to avoid custody and very often the judge I'm not criticising the judiciary I am to have a great deal of respect for them not least because my wife is a judge Um, uh, but the truth is they are under incredible pressure the the backlog is massive and mounting uh, and frankly uh, for efficiency reasons they need to get cases dealt with so there would They would perhaps threaten to reserve the matter to themselves if, in fact, it was going to be a trial. Or indeed, if it was a section 47, the judge would probably suggest, well, if you insist then on a trial, I'm going to be committing it to the Crown Court uh, once the trial has been dealt with. So it'll be the judge who sits hearing it, convicts the defendant, but then sends it to the Crown Mm. Court for a heavier sentence. All of that pressure is on that solicitor very often in a magistrate's court. It would have to give good advice to their client. And actually, for reasons of pragmatism, very often, I fear, uh, a a defendant would say, well, fair enough, I'll have it on a basis that it didn't quite happen as the way it's been alleged. You know, it might be the Section 47 assault scenario where the, where 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 the client wants to um ensure that there was no kicking or kicking whilst the alleged victim was on the floor for example which would automatically mm. uh result in a custodial sentence for for very good reason uh, actually but cases carved up on that basis um i'm afraid there is a tendency i think uh, to to f- for for that to becoming more and more uh, apparent. And and actually, the other thing I'd want to mention is, you know, uh, legal aid rates are not great. And, mm. you know, uh, solicitors are under incredible pressure. They've got a massive amount of cases before them. They might be having... The, the, the case that was referred to in that article, I barely re- remember my client, Janet Skinner, who pled guilty to an offence, which clearly she didn't commit uh, with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, but I probably I had five minutes with her, then went into the magistrates' court and found the prosecutor. It didn't happen to be the Crown prosecutor, it was a private prosecution in that instance uh, with the scandal that is the post office situation. Uh, the prosecutor offers a lesser offence uh, of um, false accounting. I suspect, on the instructions that I was given at the time, it probably. Probably amounted to that just about. Um, you are then advising your client that with a very, very good probation report, a pre-sentence report, there's a real chance of avoiding custody. Whereas if she's convicted on theft and fraud to the uh, value of something like £60,000, it's almost inevitable that she's going to be going off. To custody for potentially a rather long time, mm. given that you've you know you've you've been convicted of nicking sixty thousand pounds from the cr- the country, from the you know the post office is all yeah. owned by the government, so it is aggravated in that sense. So, you know, um, the the pressure is definitely there and getting worse, in my view. As I say, I'm ranting a little bit, so forgive me. But that's you know, completely I think that fine. Highlights how bad it was then. Uh, And the pressure under uh, criminal practitioners, you know, for for fees that, frankly, I mean, you ring a plumber uh, or a gas fitter to mend your central heating system and they'll not even turn up for less than a few hundred quid. A criminal solicitor Mm. is dealing with a case from the very beginning to the very end in a magistrate scenario for probably a couple of hundred quid. There's, There's huge pressures in that sense, as
0: well as the actual workload there's a couple of things I'd like to unpick there. Uh, Is there a difference? So in in Janet Skinner's case, you you know, that sounds like there's a tactical decision that if you run the risk of a trial, you know, you're not going to get this particular charge bargain, you're going to be charged with something else, and it it could be far more severe. That feels a little different than than this efficiency-driven idea this conveyor belt justice we've got this backlog we need to get through it and I, I mean I, I'm reading some of Jerry's slides of this presentation we're going to give on Saturday needs one brilliant title meet them greet em, plead em justice where you just push it through the system are, are there differences there between those two?
2: I think there are and I think Janet Skinner's case was very different not least because the uh, the alleged uh, victim um, was also the investigator Uh, And the prosecutor in that case, it's, you know, the the post office scandal was just very different for all sorts of reasons, not least, actually, uh, because most of these postmasters we've now found uh, were contacting the helpline, which was effectively, as I understand it, Fujitsu. Uh, Fujitsu was saying, well, if you, you know, if your sheet's not balancing and you can't close the system down for the day. It's 80 quid adrift, put in four transactions at 20 quid apiece, and then it'll balance and you can close the thing down. They're almost the scenario I gave in Parliament when I was speaking to this, although it's not a perfect analogy, sort of explains it a bit. It's almost like being in a burning building on the first floor. You ring 999, and the operator says, Well, find something to smash the window and jump out. You do just that. And, you know, a few days later, uh, you're you charged with criminal damage. It was just, you know, there were almost, you know, they were almost told to false accounts in order to balance the system. But it was denied, by the way, denied by the post office until I think relatively recently. So that was very, very different to this sort of, you know, this thumbscrew type court, which has existed for a very long time.
3: You know, I think the, uh, we have the same problem in America, but but I think there's no easy solution to these, uh, to the problem of people falsely pleading guilty to things they didn't do. Um, But I think the first thing that we have to have is an awareness that it happens. And if we're aware that it happens, um, then we need to try and do what we can to reduce those those, um, systems and circumstances that, that create this. So nobody's saying that that plea bargaining is a bad thing. Um, the courts in, in England and Wales and America would completely grind to a halt if people were not demanded a trial and had to have a trial in every single case, and nor do most defendants even want to have a trial. Um, but one of the things that I think, um, and, and you're right, it has only gotten worse because of the backlog now with with the COVID and the courts being shut down. And, you know, we have just in my city of Milwaukee, we have something like 175 defendants in custody charged with a homicide. Um, If you tried, you know, one a week, you would be years still um, to try and create that to weed through that backlog. Um, But one of the things on less serious cases in particular, is that when people are in custody, when they're remanded or pretrial detention is a big driver of false guilty pleas, because people do sit because they are poor. No other reason than, than that they just don't have the money to be able to get out in America on bail. Now there are some where you can be remanded without bail, only in the more serious cases, but generally it's a question of money. And uh, some states are, undertaking bail reform, trying to get rid of cash bail altogether, um, and that's a good step, I think, uh, except in, obviously, the more serious cases where the, the public would really be in, in danger. Um, but judges are under pressure, too. My wife was also a judge for about a year, and I learned a lot about what judges have to deal with. For one thing they have a, a, um, a computer program, that, like a calendar, that tells them, you know, how many cases do they have that are one month old, two months, six months, one, more than one year. You know, the, are they into the red bar um, graphic where there's then pressure on them? You know, this case is old, you gotta get this thing resolved. Well, it may, might be old because it's it's very complex, um, but there is this constant churning. And uh, so along with the, the issue of money when it comes to pretrial detention, the lack of money, there's also this lack of money for resources in the entire justice system. I, I think all, aspects have been starved. Uh, we don't have enough judges, we don't have enough prosecutors, we don't have enough defense attorneys, particularly indigent defense attorneys, um, and court personnel. And um, in America, the and, and in England, it's not like the judges can order parliament to increase their wages <laughs> or increase their number of uh, judges. That, so the legislatures hold the purse strings, while the judiciary is supposed to mete out justice. And it's just very, very, very difficult when it's being starved from all ends.
2: Can I just pick up on something Jerry said he's reminded me Sure. The reality is this. You know, since 2010, and again, I'm not trying to make a political point, it's just the the, the facts. Since 2010, and between 2010 and 2019, the government have closed 50% of, magistrate's court and a good percentage of crown courts have flogged off the estate, they've flogged off the buildings. I mean, ironically, one of which is being used as a sort of a TV studio for court drama. I mean, you couldn't make it up. Um, it is just utterly ludicrous. So the problem, I'm afraid I don't have the answers, but the problem is not going to get better unless we have serious investment in the criminal justice system. That's what is needed, unfortunately. And, you know, it doesn't get many uh, votes if a party in opposition or indeed a party of government starts threatening to spend uh, millions, hundreds of millions of pounds on the criminal justice system. Uh, Unless you're uh, involved, unless, you know, I often used to think of the parents who I often met whose kids had never been in bother with the police and frankly the regard uh, for lawyers was not very high especially not legal aid lawyers until little Johnny or little Jill found themselves in the criminal justice system and needed a legal aid lawyer um so i mean you know it's just an observation but we have to be honest about what's needed and the reality is investment is badly needed selling off Half the uh, court buildings in the England and Wales is not a way to uh, reduce the backlog
1: i do think, <laughs> i think can I um agree with what you're saying um and definitely obviously it would be wonderful if the criminal justice system could get more funding and that would solve a lot of these problems. I do also tend to think though um one of the things that i 've been studying and that I'm interested in is incentives that can appeal to guilty people, but don't appeal to innocent people. And I think the fact is that actually the vast majority of people who plead guilty are guilty, not all of them, but also there are these kind of systematic pockets in the system in which it's very predictable that innocent people are pleading guilty. Um, Getting out of remand is one of them. Um, as in Janet Skinner's case, getting a non-custodial sentence if you plead when you would be sentenced quite possibly to a long custodial sentence at trial is another. Um, And then there's this other kind of pocket of cases where people can't really afford to go to full trial, but they can afford to plead. And I think the whole problem won't be solved without this funding, but we can also target these kind of pockets and say what are the situations in which it's hugely predictable that innocent people are pleading um, and maybe get rid of those. So I've really been trying to push for getting rid of this ability to change the type of sentence by pleading guilty. Let's not say that you deserve a jail sentence if you go to trial, but you don't deserve um, a custodial sentence if you plead. And so I think targeting those is also important in reducing false guilty pleas. And I think we have an easier time in that regard here than they do in the United States, because our plea system is much more tightly controlled. It's much more consistent. And in general, the reductions are more modest. I think the one third reduction isn't horrible in itself until you look at some of these side effects that it has, particularly this change in sentence type. So I think we have a good opportunity to improve things here, actually. But um, of course, the whole problem won't be solved until there's more funding.
0: And I I suppose as well, I think it's a really great idea, this idea that you can't change the sentence type if you enter a guilty plea. But I guess the, the problem for the lawmakers is that you want this efficiency. It seems to me sort of researching in sort of the rise of managerialism the efficiency is being prioritized over justice. So we need this conveyor belt approach in order for the system to work, to clear the backlog, to get things done quickly. Is there a danger of losing that efficiency, which I don't think is a bad thing, but losing that sort of efficiency sort of carrot by dissuading people from pleading guilty?
1: I don't necessarily think so. We've done some research recently, where we look at this type discount. And actually, people who are guilty, are often willing to plead on the basis of much smaller incentives, you don't need to waive this, you know, such big incentives in front of them, um, to get them to plead. But I also think that's a relatively small proportion of cases which go through the justice system. They're these cases kind of on the cusp of um, a custodial sentence. And I think you could remove that incentive while still retaining the number of guilty pleas that we need um, to maintain kind of the efficiency of the justice system. Of course, no one knows until you do it but our experimental research that we've been doing and our modeling definitely suggests that actually, even without that ability to stay out of custody or to avoid custody, guilty people on the whole are still willing to plead on the basis of this um, sentence length reduction.
3: Thank you. Um, One of the things I think, uh, if I could just follow up on one thing, uh, the... uh, one of the difficulties that we have when you talk about efficiency, you know, efficiency is good to a point, but we're talking about human lives and human, human beings. It's not like how many cars you can uh, efficiently produce in, in one day or in one year out of a factory. There are consequences when we sacrifice justice and fairness that are much, much broader than even in the individual defendants' lives. Um, respect for the law. You know, we wonder why there seems to be this deteriorating respect for the law and in culture in our society. And it's partly because we don't really, as a government, seem to respect the judicial branch as much. It's not as important. Um, and, you know, we wanna make it more efficient and we gotta, uh, you know, cut 50% of the magistrate courts or whatever it is that, that's been happening in England and Wales. Um, without looking at the consequences the long-term consequences of that not just to the individual but to society as a whole and that a lot a lot of that is going to have to be an awareness an education effort so that people really can um, uh, you know I'll give you one example you know the, the whole police abuse issues in America and the George floyd uh, which is one year ago tomorrow uh, as we're taping this you um, it has has really hurt society, and particularly, um, there are whole neighborhoods that do not want to cooperate anymore with police investigation. The the number of unsolved crimes is going up because people won't cooperate. They don't trust their justice system. They don't trust the police, and when they get into the courts, they don't trust the court, and and they may be innocent, and they may say, "Look, you know, I, if, if I should take this deal." quickly um, take the discount because I don't trust the court will give me justice, even if I'm innocent. And that's a real serious problem that we have to think about the consequences of, of what that does to our society when people really feel that way.
1: There's the One of the really interesting things about guilty pleas in this country is that there's been work which suggests that actually discrepancies in the sentencing of white defendants and minority defendants, maybe in part due to the guilty plea system. Um, Actually, that's generally explained here because minority defendants are very reluctant to plead because they don't trust the system and they see the plea as almost a cooperation with the system. And when they are systematically pleading guilty less than white defendants, they end up systematically receiving longer sentences on the whole, right? Because they do go on to get convicted at trial. So I think that's another really important um, discrepancy inequality which is getting introduced by the police system. The other one that I think is really important um, that the post office case really highlighted is that actually when defendants are pleading guilty, their cases aren't getting fully investigated, the strength of the case isn't getting fully tested at trial. So I question regarding the post office case, what would have happened if every single one of those defendants hadn't been pressured to plead guilty by the ability to avoid jail? Would this have been investigated better, sooner? Would we have seen it like these people are vigorously contesting their innocence, maybe there's something wrong? Whereas because they were pressured to plead, we see it as, you know, we accepted that system I think for much longer than we might have otherwise.
2: I'd agree entirely with that, Rebecca, and I think actually it's it, it's what makes it even more cynical because the post office knew when they were offering the lesser offence of false accounting. In most cases, actually, I think, as I understand it, most of those defendants were offered false accounting when they indicated they were going to plead to the to the main offences. You know, it really is uh, uh, really cynical uh, uh, of them because what they was desperate to avoid. Was the evidence being aired in a crown court before a jury? I think there was at least three. Uh, three of those who were accused who did test it to trial in a crown court. I think two were convicted, to my knowledge, and one was uh, acquitted. Uh, but actually, if there had been hundreds and hundreds of people uh, facing a judge and jury, uh, we'd have known. You know, the profession, the practitioners would have known that it wasn't just a one-off. I I remember having the conversation with the prosecutor at the time and he told me, I'm sure he wasn't doing it because he was trying to mislead, that certainly wasn't the case, but he told me that this was a one-off. You know, my my client was the, the only person who'd been accused. We now know with the benefit of hindsight many, many years that actually, you know, the post office would tend to get one or two people a year who had the fingers in the till all of a sudden we're getting 10, 20 people a week. It was just unbelievable. And and that's what makes it all the more cynical to me. Hence the fact that we needed a statutory inquiry. Thank goodness the government have finally conceded it has to be uh, because we need the evidence. We need to hear about the evidence. uh, And, you know, we need to know what people knew, when they knew it, and, you know, how much cover-up and at what level the cover-up was going on I happen to think actually it was from you know the executives at the post office to the civil servants indeed potentially dare I say it even ministers who were either misled or were allowing the wall to be pulled over their eyes.
0: Do you think there's a problem in terms of the post office case that they brought the prosecution themselves as well so it seems to be you know a built-in desire to hide any wrongdoing and shovel it all under the floor
2: absolutely i do i think you know with any ordinary criminal offense it's the police who investigate it you get an opportunity to have the uh, the initial evidence put to them in a police station scenario um uh, the defense lawyers uh, have a chance to test that even before it's charged um uh, and you know the prosecutor is impartial and objective uh, um I'm sure the prosecutors for the post office would have been if they'd have known uh, what the disclosure was and you know Mm. that they should have been disclosing frankly you know they're just not they were just not saying uh the stuff that was undermining the prosecution case and assisting the defense they just weren't getting it um so yeah impartiality didn't exist you might have a police officer who's desperately keen to um make something stick but actually, when it gets to a CPS lawyer, they're also under time pressures. Of Well, of course, CPS solicitors are, are under pressure as well, but they do have an opportunity to sit back, look at the evidence and make a decision objectively, without any particular axe to grind. They've never met the defendant, for example, um, and they can make that decision as to whether it's charged or not independently from a professional standpoint. Um, That didn't happen with the post office. It was um, those prosecutors were uh, instructed at the very last second. Um, They didn't have any uh, involvement in reviewing the evidence. It was all done completely separately by the investigators and presented to the uh, independent prosecutors was just firms and solicitors actually up and down the land who were instructed to prosecute individual cases. Mm. You know, I don't criticise any of those solicitors at all. They were lied to just as much as the defendants and the defence uh, barristers and solicitors were lied to as
0: well. Just, um, I, I know you're all very busy so this is pretty much my, my last point if we just have time to squeeze this in. You mentioned the idea of assisting the defence, Carl, and I I think that's very interesting in terms of that, you know, disclosure or discovery is wrapped up in this. And when this system fails, uh, for whatever reason, um, you know, we have defence lawyers that are working on offering advice on a partial picture of the facts. How can you get full and frank legal advice, especially in terms of whether to plead guilty or not guilty, when you're only operating on this partial picture and any failure to comply with the defense, with, with the disclosure regime, there's no sanctions for the prosecution. A, how in, how important is that? And B, how can that be fixed? And that's a question, if you could all answer that, that'd be great if you have thoughts.
2: Well, I don't have the answers to the question. So if you don't mind, I'll suggest, you know, what I think the issue is, I think very yeah. often, I mean, the post office was was uh, something that highlighted this very much because uh, the uh, defendants were never very rarely instructed solicitors to advise them in the interview stage. Uh, some of them were interviewed in the post office. Uh, very often they were waltzed up the stairs in the uh, within the business and interviewed in the bedroom uh, with tape recording being turned on the, you know, the requirements of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act were barely complied with, actually. So there was no opportunity for a solicitor to be giving advice from a very early stage. Now that happens now, unfortunately, in criminal proceedings where um, people are not represented in the police station, you call into a police station or you're arrested. Do you want a solicitor? Well, it's going to take three hours, the custody Mm. sergeant might say. Very often not true, uh, in fact, Uh, but they will probably refuse the right to be represented in the police station. Takes away the opportunity for the solicitor to have a real feel of what the evidence might be. They've not had the disclosure prior to interview. They've not had an opportunity to think about what the, you know, what the potential defenses might be, etc. They're representing that client very often like me with Janet Skinner, at the first meeting of which is on the concourse of the magistrates' court. When I've got probably 10 minutes, the magistrates, if it's a lay bench or the district judge, uh, sending the court usher out to say, where are you, Mr. Turner? You know, that is a real problem. And, you know, I'm afraid I'm not, I have no idea what the answer is, but it certainly is a huge and a significant factor,
0: I think. Okay. Thanks, Carl.
3: Well, you know, uh, the, the, the disclosure uh, is certainly an issue, the, how quickly it happens, discovery, we call it in America. And, You know, even if you are uh, an attorney who is available uh, in the early stage of the representation in America, let's say you're you're hired and you go down for the interview with the police or you're there for the charging decision that the prosecution might make, um, unless the prosecutor shares with you the packet of police reports, you still don't have sufficient information to be able to advise your counsel. You may have a little bit better um, if you're at the police station and a solicitor's there and can talk to the officer and get a better idea of what kind of a case they have. But until you actually can see what the reports are, you don't you, you have no way to test the theory that they're they're working on. Um, and so to uh, to provide as early a discovery of the police reports as possible, so that the attorneys can be fully informed and can therefore intelligently. Uh, provide advice to the defendants, about whether to take a plea deal or not is is crucial. Um, And systemic problems or procedures that that encourage people to enter guilty pleas before their attorneys, solicitors have had that opportunity to do an investigation or to even see the reports um, or to have to disclose to, to the prosecution what your defense is going to be, what you're contesting without having a chance to really see the reports is, um, you know, fundamentally unfair. And until those managerialistic procedures are um, reformed, it's going to be hard to, uh, to, you know, to to deal with this issue, I think. Thanks, Jerry.
1: Yeah, I think um, I would echo a lot of what's already been said, and I come across it a lot in my interviews, particularly with children, Because, of course, this whole regime applies to under 18s in England and Wales, too. And so I've been interviewing children to find out why they plead. And even in the 20 that I've interviewed so far, children are saying we didn't I didn't know whether I did it or I didn't think that I did it. And I think that there's this conception. And I know that solicitors say that they will sometimes hear this in court, that your client knows whether they did it or not. And sometimes when you actually look at the wording of these statutes, um, they might not. But you also look at the kind of defences which might apply to their case. And you do need information about what the case against you is and what defences might be available to you um, before you know whether you are guilty. And so I think we probably have to get rid of that idea that, that, you know, your client knows whether they did it. but. Yeah, I think on disclosure, the sentencing council did consider this in their most recent consultation. And they came down with kind of requiring this, what we have now. And there were people in the consultation who pushed for more. And they kind of came back with, well, no, because you're no longer saving the system time and money if you're requiring a huge amount of the case against your client to be presented to them prior to making this plea decision. So I think Um, I think it's a difficult one and I'm not sure that it's easily solved other than to recognise that clients don't know whether they've done it and we need to give them sufficient information they can um, understand that in an informed way.
0: Thank you. Um, And thank you to all three of you for joining me tonight. It was an extremely interesting chat and um, I appreciate you taking time out of your days and your evenings to join me. So thanks a lot. Thanks very much indeed.
3: My pleasure.
0: I'd like to thank our three guests this evening for giving us such an interesting discussion about the raft of issues concerning disclosure, the early guilty plea and the post office scandal. As ever, I'd like to thank our supporters whose donations help keep the the show going. I'd like to thank Joe Doherty, Donna Jenkins, Lucy Green, Claire Malone, Ian Robbins, Elise Goff, Michael Saw, Pad Ryan and Wolf Ryan. If you'd like to donate to the show, please follow the Ko-fi link in the comments. Um,
3: And until next time, I will see you later.